it's scary, this idea to give it your all and then be confronted with this idea of like, yes, you did give it every ounce of you and it still wasn't enough. Welcome back to the show. I'm Travis Chappell, and I believe that if you can connect with the best, you can become the best. So after creating 800 podcast episodes about building your network, I've come to realize that networking is really just making friends. If you're doing it the right way, anyway. Join me as I make friends with world-class athletes like Shaquille O'Neal, entertainers like Rob Deerdeck, authors like Dr. Nicole LaPera, former presidents like Vicente Fox, or even the occasional FBI hostage negotiator, billionaire real estate mogul, or polarizing political figure. So if you want to make more friends that help you become a better version of yourself, then subscribe to the show and keep on listening because this is Travis Makes Friends. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the show. Today, I'm making friends with Josh Peck. Josh is an American actor and comedian who began his career as a child actor in the late 90s, early 2000s, and had an early role on the Nickelodeon sitcom The Amanda Show from 2000-2002. Talk about something that'll make you feel old. Peck rose to prominence for his role as Josh Nichols alongside Drake Bell's character on Nickelodeon's Drake and Josh for a few years, and then they did a couple of movies and all that stuff. And this is really what I know him from, which will tell everybody exactly how old I am. Uh, This is what I was watching growing up was a lot of Drake and Josh. And then now he's, there was really like this period of time where he just kind of was making the transition from child actor to being an actual actor, an adult actor. And we talked a little bit about that in the interview and some of the things that he had to do to refine his own acting skills, even though it was something that he'd been doing since he was a kid. So a very, very interesting kind of re-rise again. And so he was smart, did a lot of really good things along the way, started his own YouTube channel. It's got three and a half million subscribers and went into the creator world while he was still working on his acting chops. And now he's gotten some serious roles and some really great things, including a role in the upcoming Christopher Nolan film, Oppenheimer, which is supposed to be one of the best releases of the summer in 2023. So we talk about everything from how much money he was making as a star on Drake and Josh, which is going to be a lot less than you would expect. And then we we talk about his relationship uh, with Drake and with some other people that that he knew growing up and then in the film world currently. So this is a lot of fun for me just because I I watched so much Drake and Josh growing up. It was really cool to have a conversation with him. And I also brought in my producer, Eric, for this episode. He's got a podcast called Film Schooled, uh, where he talks just about filmmaking and movies and television, all that kind of stuff, uh, because that's what he really enjoys. And so uh, he had a lot of really great insights to add into this conversation. So I'm really, really stoked to be releasing this episode. Without further ado, please enjoy mine and Eric's conversation with Josh Peck. First of all, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Oh my gosh. So happy to be here. Thank you guys. Yeah. Glad to have you on. And I'm, I'm personally a huge fan of biographies. So like reading your story was really cool. And I especially love actors' biographies. And one thing that I like about your book specifically is that it's not just a play-by-play of your acting career. Like you go really deep from the first few pages into trauma. Like we're all amalgamations of trauma, which I thought was kind of an interesting way to start. So first of all, I just want to know, like, were you hesitant diving into kind of the nitty gritty of your own personal life beyond the screen persona? Yeah, I think it's a great question because for me, like I grew up in the last generation without social media. So public people tended to have like this perfectly curated image that they delivered out to the public. And I never really thought that I would ever get totally honest and personal and transparent. But kind of the times culture started to move in a direction where that was really not only rewarded, but slightly like demanded. Mm. And then also it just felt like my life had so benefited from people being willing to be vulnerable with me and transparent and share their pain, their struggle. And I felt like if I had anything special, 
I was in a unique position because a lot of people, hopefully, who were who was reading the book might have grown up with me, might have known me for a long period. And this idea that someone that they were watching on television was also going through their own trials and challenges, I thought might be able to really resonate with them. Was there a hesitancy? Like, I mean, obviously, I mean, you played Josh on TV. So the Josh that people had in mind was that Josh, like this image that they saw. Was there, was there any hesitancy to like rip that bandaid off and say like, oh, I'm a real person. Like there's somebody beyond who you kind of know and watched after school. I guess maybe, but I'm not Mr. Rogers. You know, like I, I think there's there's certainly a shrine of people like that where you, you probably, it wouldn't behoove you to be transparent. But I also like, I can't keep up a, a like a reputation. It's sort of like, I guess it's a trade, right? So yes, to your point, if I never got honest, then I'm preserving this idea for people that's slightly just, um, it's, you know, it's it's just nice and it gives people a bit of a reprieve and that's a value because people just love the show. But I think for most people, hopefully this is just an extra level to it. It doesn't take anything away from what they loved about Tricky Josh. They can still watch it and totally lose themselves in it. But also they can, you know, hopefully get a little perspective and a little bit of help too. And and if I can do that, then all the better. And if someone's like, I read your book and now I can't enjoy drinking Josh anymore, I'd be like, there's something deeper going on there. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. You know, I might say something more about them than it does about the book or you. Right. I'm curious on when you decided to write the book, why in the timing that you decided to write it in? You got so many other things going on right now. You have opportunities pulling you left and right. You're doing a movie and you got like two shows going on. You got a podcast. What was the you know catalyst that made you go, I, I got to get this message out and I got to get it out now? I initially sent the book deal at the start of the pandemic. And it seems like the pandemic was sort of that thing of, especially quarantine, was that, that idea of if you've been putting anything off, there literally is no excuse. Like, yeah. if your garage is still dirty now, two years later, something's wrong. You should have been organizing. <laughs> you had the time. And so I think it was like my mental garage. Like, I, I'd always had this idea that I would love to write something. And specifically at 35, someone like me, if I'm writing a, in quotes, memoir, because it doesn't even quite feel like that. It, it, to me, feels like a self-help book hiding as a memoir, ideally. Mm, yeah. But... You know, if I waited 10 years or 20 years, which would have been totally appropriate and probably better, (laughs) there's only two things that would have come from that. Either I would have never written it because maybe I, you know, I don't have much success or my life transitions in a way that I wasn't expecting. Maybe my life moves away from entertainment. You, You never know. Or I get a lot of success and then I'm writing from the perspective of what we see a lot of these, you know, public people memoirs of, of like these people that have accomplished so much that you almost feel like a disconnect because that person is so the one percent. Sure. So me writing this at thirty five is saying like, yeah, I've done some cool things, but I also face so much deep insecurity, and and at thirty five, like this is just views from the halfway point. Like the verdict's still out. Like I, I've been incredibly lucky, but there's still much for me to do. And I think that's how a lot of people are at 35. Like they've, they've done some good stuff, but you know, there's still a good 20 years ahead of them of hard work probably. Well, that's, that's what's interesting about the book. Like, and I, it is definitely a lot of self-help and it definitely does cover a lot of ground that you don't expect it to cover because it could have just been page to page. 
here's some fan service stories, you know, from set, you know, like that could have been what it is. But it is a lot of a memoir, you know, it is talking about your life and career, which I think is interesting because in 35 years, you've lived a lot of life. And I was joking with Travis before we, we jumped on, like, it almost feels like you were born an adult, like you're doing stand up before you're 12 years old, you know, like, what pushed you to start, you know, I guess, growing so quickly and like stepping into a career at a super young age? Oh, I think you're right. I always looked up to adults. I wanted adult friends. And I I just like now, especially when I see people like who are, you know, the Disney adults and whatnot, like no shade. Disney is a former employee or employer of mine, you know, love them. But or, or like people that are going to adult summer camp, I'm like, it's over. Move <laughs> <laughs> on. But it's fascinating to me if people who like, and it's a beautiful thing, no judgment, because like for me, it was like my adolescence was like this necessary evil that I had to endure to eventually become an adult where mm-hmm. I finally had some power and freedom and choice. But as a kid, I was sort of, you know, I had a great, great mom growing up, but she was older. And also we were limited financially and just through circumstance. So I constantly felt like I was at the mercy of things out of my control. So I think that's why I did stand up or that's why I like, you know, got into this career at such a young age, because had it been anything else, it it didn't have the same social credit. Like if you're great at an instrument as a kid or, or as, uh, even as little league, it's like, you're not going to probably make any money from it. And, and that's okay. That's, that's great. But acting is this weird thing that you can literally do from, you know, a month old and make grown up money be around grownups and start to be regarded as someone of value who, who demands, you know, a certain level of respect. So I think at 10 or 11 or 12, I was like, oh, this seems like, this seems like the, the right avenue for a guy like me. I'm curious on your relationship with money and how it's evolved over time, having grown up, you know, with not a lot of it and then getting a lot of it when you are that young. How did that start to affect you know your relationship with your mom or your family or your friends? And then post Drake and Josh, like during trying to figure out what you're doing next, and then going going back to not having it coming in all the time, and then and then doing more online things and now movies and all this other stuff. What what has been your relationship or your perspective with or around money along the way? It's a great question. I, I there's this great Fran Lebowitz quote where she says. There's two types of people in the world, people who worry about money and people who don't have it. (laughs) I mentioned this in the book and I wasn't even going to mention money because it's usually gross to talk about it. But my friend Ryan Holiday, who helped advise me on the book, said, you have to tell people how much money you make because there is a preconception that when you do a show like this, you're set for life. And it would behoove you to correct people's perception that, you know, I basically over four years made about $100,000 a year doing Drake and Josh. Now, no one's debating that that's a great income and that's a great middle-class lifestyle. I remember this woman yelled at me on Twitter the other day. She's like, I make half of that and I work with kids. (laughs) It's like, no one's debating that you should be making more working with kids. (laughs) That's way more important. Absolutely. I was like, all the only reason I even shared it was that no one thinks that you're making a million bucks a year. But a lot of people thought I was. 
so that when you are in your 20s and you're doing work, that maybe you're just doing it for a paycheck, or maybe you're doing something on social media or something that's not as, in quotes, glamorous, because you got to pay the bills. People look at that and go, oh, would you blow all your money? What, what were you, a typical, you know, cliche young Hollywood guy and bought some like Italian supercar? And it's like, no, dude, I just like had 18 months of runway when the show ended and I had to keep working as would anyone making a middle-class income. So that was my desire to sort of share that side of it, to just kind of correct sort of like the ubiquitous idea of, of what someone in my position would be making. And, and yeah, money, you know, it's a great servant, but a terrible master. And only at 35, knock wood, that I've been able to create a certain level of security have I been finally able to like not totally white knuckle life. Because I grew up mm. with very little money. So it, it, it scares the hell out of me, this idea of ever being in that position. Yeah, well, I, I mean, that's, that's a gift now at this point, right? Yes. Because you, you grow up with money, you don't know what it's like to not have it. It makes you act a lot more disciplined than you would, uh, which is probably the biggest common denominator for most people trying to scrape their way out of poverty is the lack of financial discipline to think of the future and think of, man, I don't want to be in this position again. Let me figure out a way out of it and then be disciplined enough to stay in that position. Yeah, it's hard. And like every asset can become a defect. I find for me, it can be be a fine line of where am I being frugal and smart or am I being miserly? Like, am mm, I sure. over, you know, and, and there's certain things like, uh, luckily I have this big brother from the Big Brother Foundation. He happens to work in finance. So he's, he's a great advisor regardless. And I don't know, I don't know why I feel compelled to share this, but I remember like when my, my wife was pregnant, she had a doctor that she loved. And we have great, you know, I, I'm lucky enough to have great insurance through the Screen Actors Guild, which is like a really, um, you know, I'm incredibly lucky to have because not everyone has that. And I remember my wife got pregnant and she had a doctor who she loved who happened to not be covered by that insurance. And I was like, well, this is, you know, this is simple. We should go with someone who's covered. Like we have this great insurance. I've been paying into it for 20 years. And I remember I got on the phone with my brother and he was like, are you nuts? He's like, your wife is carrying your kid. She <laughs> likes this doctor and she's really good. And yeah, it's going to cost you a couple grand out of pocket, but you have that money. What else are you going to spend it on? Like, this is the, the perfect use of, in quotes, a luxury. Yes. And it was a great lesson for me to be like, yeah, like this is the things to spend on. Yeah, it's, it's not about things or all the other things that most people look at money being. It's, it's options. It's the freedom right. to choose. It's when you're in that situation, you can decide to do something different. You're not forced into a certain, you're not forced into a certain mold because, well, this is how it is and this is all we have. So we have to take it. It's just options. You make that's such a great point. You're right. And and it's the luxury and the the privilege of options because you know, so few people are are afforded that. I wanted to talk about money there for a second, uh, just because that's that's one of the things that like on the show, we like to talk about things that most people are like, they look at as being taboo topics, but they're so prominent. Like they're things that every single person listening deals with. And it sucks that it's so culturally frowned upon to talk about some of these things because they're the root of so many issues and problems for a lot of people. And so I, we, we like to talk about, I'll talk about certain things like that. But I do want to get back into, into your story specifically before we talk a little bit more about uh, where people can find the book and things like that. So 
Can you take us back to when you jumped into the online world? Uh, so, so like you're coming out of more like traditional media, Hollywood acting, and then you see these like random online companies that are popping up, and oh, people are actually able to build influence, create attention, and craft a, a living out of this thing. And not many celebrities at the time were jumping in or taking advantage of those things, but you were one of them. Why? Well, for the the two or three years leading up to getting on social media, I was sort of sort of treading water um, financially, and it was my pleasure to take care of my mom. I knew since I was 15, 16, I would always do that, but I was sort of supporting two households. And it was certainly stressful, even though it was an honor to be able to do that because she was older and she had really given up a lot to support my career. So I was nervous. And I would like do, I did this movie, Battle of the Year, a 3D dance movie with Chris Brown. I don't mean to brag, but I did like two or three of these over three years. I'd get one a year. And it would pay something called Schedule F, which is, it's kind of scale for doing a movie with a proper budget. And it means you make 65,000 bucks. And then after 20% to agent managers and, and for taxes, you clear 40 grand. And that was like what I was living off of for the year. But, but when you're supporting two households, that money goes like that. And so it was nerve wracking. And I remember I started to get this following on social media and I'm seeing people for me, it was never in the interest of making money because there was no good example of people making money on social when I got in. For me, it was this idea that I'd constantly gone on auditions and people would say, yeah, he's great, but this other guy is good too and he's coming off of something big and, Je- and Peck hasn't worked in a while. And I was like, I need something. Like, uh, I'll take an edge. And the social media following, I said, well, maybe some savvy executive will say, ah, he's good for the role. He had a good audition. And in addition... He can also help sell the movie. But then after a year of doing that, I see that there's like Boost Mobile and like McDonald's doing Vines and promoting on social media. And I'm like, well, I have a pretty good following. I have more followers than that guy. Like, should be able to maybe get something in this area. And I remember the first time I got an email from a company called Badoo, which was a dating app company out of Europe. And I'd seen a lot of people do ads for it. And they said, would you like to do an ad for us on Vine and we will pay you $5,000. Just give us your PayPal account. And I didn't even have a PayPal account, but I thought, well, you know, I'm going to give this a try. And what's the worst case? I make a six second funny video. I'll pull it down if they don't pay me. And I remember I posted it and within seconds, I get an alert from my PayPal that the money was transferred. And I was like, oh my God. I mean, this was revelatory because just to make enough money to not even support my nut for the year, I had to go through auditions and negotiations and pray that I was like the right guy. But suddenly I made a healthy amount of money by doing this thing that I was already doing. Mm. So that was like, that was an upset. I remember I leaned into that and right away, I just started figuring out what are the agencies who are brokering this, these deals? How can I be on the list of all these people and be considered for these opportunities? And it just, you know, one after the next started to happen. And, uh, I sort of never let off the gas. This is something that's kind of interesting because in your book, there's like this dichotomy of like, this is what's m- making you a good amount of money. You're growing really quickly. You know, you're getting known, which is near impossible for a lot of people. They'll peak, you know, as a child actor and then they just where they go. And you're building this yeah. new following. And this is before you see like a Bella Porch landing a music deal. And this is before you see all these influencers stepping into the space. And the way that you talk about transitioning into social is a lot like when I would read 
you know, actors from decades ago talking about going to TV. It felt mm-hmm. like, yes, I'm making a lot of money. I'm getting very popular in this medium. But also there's this feeling of like, oh, now I'm the social media guy or now I'm the TV guy. How long did you have that lingering feeling that you described in the book of like, oh man, like now I'm a YouTuber. Like people are looking at me and going like, oh, the, now he's a YouTuber. He used to have this cool show and now he's this. You know, was that hard to work through? And like, how long did it take to kind of navigate that? Still, I'm still there. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I'm on a podcast. What am I yeah. doing right now? <laughs> I, uh, I, it, look, I went through a three-year slump of really not working. And it was at the time where my YouTube career was at its apex. And it was just, I don't know if there was like a lot of animus or vitriol tied to it. It's just people like to break my balls about it. Like, and they didn't think it was that. And because again, like they're like, oh, poor you, right? Like you came from this cool thing, but like now you're making a healthy living, you know, making stupid videos of you eating hot chicken. Like we're really going to cry for you, bro. Like, (laughs) so it certainly wasn't like, I don't think people were necessarily being mean, but it, it got to me because my identity was so wrapped up in being an actor. And if I'm even being honest, it, more honest, it was the thing that I loved most of all. And so this idea that I'd worked at this thing since I was 10, and then I might have to let go of it was like ego shattering. And so I spent the three years, I would audition. I, I did like a, a guest starring thing here and there. And once a year, I would test for a show. So like where, and for anyone who doesn't know, like you would, for a network show or really any show on TV, you audition, then you get a call back. And then eventually it's called the test where you and maybe two or three other options of other actors, you know, go and audition in front of all the network executives and they decide like if you're the guy for the part. And that's a good sign. You know, if you're getting that far, it means you're probably doing the right thing, even if you don't get it. So I had a little bit of data to support like, well, I'm not like completely out of the ballpark, but I'm not connecting. The one thing that was my saving grace through those three years was I went back to acting class because I knew that I accrued some bad habits and that if I really wanted to be considered for the roles that I dreamt of, that I needed to be really good. And I wasn't sure if I was, and I'm not even sure if I am now, but I I needed to know that I was doing everything in my power to be the best version of of what it is I do. So I think that's what saved me. So January, you know, 2020, I auditioned for this show, for the show Turner and Hooch on Disney Plus, and I booked it. And I just remember what a turning point that was for me. And it was a lead up of three years of ego death, going back to acting class, facing my demons, looking where I needed, you know, to improve and allowing myself to like do that work. And uh, and in a weird way, I don't know why I feel compelled to mention this. I, I've always had hair issues. <laughs> like I'm a Jewish kid. I have uh, thick ethnic hair, super curly. And so for the last decade, I would get my hair relaxed, like get the shit, comb through my hair. Like literally it smells awful. And I would have like this bouffant, like this long hair, like, you know, beautiful, ridiculous hair that always took high like maintenance. And I remember it was like December of 2019. And I was like, I'm going to shave my head. Cause like in a weird way, that hair was like a manifestation of, of like ego and vanity and betraying who I really was. And I was like, I don't know why, but I got to cut all this hair off and just see if I can like live my life, not attached to this look or who I think I am. 
And I don't know if it had anything to do with it. Maybe it's just like you would more believe a cop with a crew cut than you would with like dreamy Bobby O'Hare. But like a month later, I booked Turner and Hooch. And I think like it was somehow correlated. Just one more question before we jump into the influencer spot. Like you mentioned money, obviously not being the sole driver. You talked about that, you know, but then, you know, you also talk about, you were on Michael Rosenbaum's podcast and you both kind of were sharing like, it's, it's really embarrassing when you're out and people are pointing you out as like, oh, you're that guy. Like you talked about your mom specifically being like, oh, did you see my son? He has this show. And that's like, you said it makes you like viscerally uncomfortable. But on the flip side, you talk about, you know, you critique yourself a lot in your book for being self-centered or having an ego. Like when it comes to acting specifically, money and ego drives a lot of people to want to be an actor. What's the thing that's driving you specifically? If it's not money, if it's not necessarily fame, is it just the craft or is there something else that kind of is pushing that? I think, look, I, I think we have a lot of our greatest athletes because of shitty admonishing fathers who told their kids that it was never good enough. And we've seen a lot of greatness driven by chips on people's shoulders. So I like, I, I think that works. I think money and prestige can work too. I think it just, it, it can tend to be a bad fuel. Like it'll make your car go, but it'll erode your engine. So I think I definitely, for years, for decades, was driven by a deep-seated need for financial security and to prove everyone wrong who ever doubted me. And I'm not sure that's totally gone. But more so over the last few years, and specifically what made me feel like I wanted to write this book, was this idea that my capital T truth is that I love acting. It's the thing that I've loved since I was eight years old. TV saved me from my circumstance. My best friends growing up were Billy Madison, Ace Ventura. Like I left the TV on at night, so it felt like people were were there. So the room never got dark. It was my babysitter, my friend. And it's the thing that I love. And I heard Maya Bialik interview the other day, and I love her, especially because I feel I identify with her because she was successful as a kid too. She's like, you know, I happen to have this skill set that's really good at putting on makeup and costumes and playing pretend. She's like, all the byproducts of that, the rent carpets, the premieres, the billboards, I'm not so interested in. And I feel the same. Like, I'm just not so interested in it. But I really like those moments between action and cut. There's been a recurring theme, I think, throughout the duration of your career. And even just in this interview with some of the things that you said, that's like an overarching life principle that I think I'd be remiss if I didn't at least point it out and see if that's something that you've worked on or that it just kind of is happening. But I think that a lot of people, the root of a lot of unhappiness comes from trying to control things that you have no control over. In your career, it seems like you kind of always recognized recognized that, whether it was, you know, oh, I'm going all these on, on all these auditions. And, but at the end of the day, it's always up to somebody else. Or if, you know, I could have nailed the audition, but I'm just, I just don't have the right look for the part. And it's just like all this stuff that's left up in the air and in the in the grip of uncertainty. And you kind of found solace in things that you could control. And uh, I think I think that's a really underrated skill that uh, isn't uh, perpetuated a lot in society. And so I'm curious if if that's something that you've like really worked on or looked at or been intentional about, or if um, that's wow. something that that you were just kind of unconsciously good at. Yeah, I mean, I've worked on it at a you know, pain is a great motivator and you never learned anything. I never learned anything on a good day. And so I had to spend the first 15 years getting that beaten into me constantly, like literally till I was 
a pulp at the bottom, uh, you know, laying in the, on the ground. And the only thing that kept me going was like this driver, this, I've never really laid down and I've had some like real challenges, some real disappointments, some real moments of like, is it even worth it? Should I keep going? But somehow I always like, I get an email and an audition comes in and nine times out of 10, even if it's like something I'm not super interested in or it's not cool or it doesn't pay or like, it doesn't matter. Like I always, my brain goes into this gear of like, print out the sides, read the pages, prepare. Like that's it, go in. Like this is your job. I just think I've been doing it long enough to where it, it just, I don't ever feel bigger than the audition. Like this is your job. This is what I do. So yeah, it took, but it took me a long time to, to stop trying to control, to stop trying to need certainty. And, and it creeps back in to my life, but it's, um, it's uh, fruitless. Like it, it's just like, as much as I try to control and hold on, the more life makes it clear that it's, it, it, it won't work. Yeah, sure. Talk to us about the book writing process. Uh, the, you know, you've done a lot of different types of media, but uh, writing a book, going through publishing, promoting, trying to sell the book. Like, how, how has that been? You know, I've really enjoyed it because it's been one of the few things where my wife is constantly telling me, like, be yourself, like, just be yourself. And it might sound like overly simplistic or reductive, but like most things, it's, you know, I think advice that you get that you could, you could transport it 25 years into the future or into the past. You could run it through a thousand different lenses, but it's always right is the best advice. And I can't see how be yourself could be misinterpreted, like, which is why it's good advice because I'm constantly trying to people please. I remember one of the, you know, if there's any actors listening, but like even someone who goes like on a job interview, I, for years, I would go into auditions and I would try to read the mind of the casting director and the director and producers and think, what are they looking for? And how can I give them what they're looking for? Instead, doing my job, which is I've been given a script. Within that script are clues to who this person is. And those clues are in the form of how they talk and how people talk to them. Like if someone, sometimes it, it might not even be my line. It might be the line that's being said to my character because someone goes, why do you always avoid the problem? Like, or why do you always jump to conclusions? Well, that just told me 10 things I need to know about my guy. He jumps to conclusions. Maybe he's, you know, guarded in some reason. Maybe he's been hurt by someone. But if I'm willing to do the work and I've been in acting class and I've been seeing primed as an actor, then it behooves me to take a, a, you know, make a decision about what I think would be best for this character as it serves the writing of the script and the director. And then I just go in there and I deliver that. And what happens after that's kind of not my business. But I was always trying to people please. I always had this front, uh, like this um, forward energy of like, but don't you love me? And can I be the best for you? I remember my acting teacher once told me in class early, she's like, why don't you stand on your heels, put your chest out and be a man? And I was like, oh my God, like, is this acting class? Like, did I sign up for this? But she was right. So it took me a really long time to realize like, no, if I do my work, then really all my job is, is the attempt. That's a funny story in your book where you're talking about doing Red Dawn and like being, you know, being with a Chris Hemsworth and trying to imitate his kind of action appearance and sticking out like a sore thumb. And like for anybody who's listening who is 
you know, maybe in the realm of acting, somebody who is feeling that pressure to like, oh, I need to be the ideal version of what this character is supposed to be or, you know, what this role is supposed to be. How do you dig past that, especially on productions where there's a lot of weight and like expectations surrounding it? Like, how do you set that aside and feel comfortable saying like, I'm going to give them what I am. And even if it doesn't work for them, like I feel comfortable, you know, what I'm delivering. It's hard. You know, it's, it shouldn't be wrong. And if hopefully, if you're in a, hopefully you get to a place, my friend, Brian Garrity, who's a great, great actor. And he's, you know, been, he was a co-pilot in flight and he's worked in Boardwalk Empire and Big Sky and like so many, he's delivered so many great performances. And he, I think, says this great thing, which is that when he gets cast for a part, he starts to work on it with the director and really starts to break it down. And if it needs no work and it's totally clear from the script, beautiful. But if he has some questions, he wants to add some things, he needs some help with, you know, understanding motivations and whatnot. He's like, I want to give the director enough time to either, you know, for us to figure out what's not exactly working or for them to recast me. And I think that's like a really healthy way to look look at it. And if you're on a set and you're like, this isn't working and they're not happy with it, or I'm not happy, I'm not giving them what they want. It's a bad place to be. Unless it's such a great director where you know that they're, you know that their like um, track record is so good. And they're like, trust me, like I'm happy. You might not be happy, but I'm happy. Then you just let go and you like pray. And you're like, well, he's never, you know, he's never embarrassed an actor before. He probably won't again. Cause that can happen, but you have to be in great hands for that. Speaking of directors, you know, I mean, you just recently got cast in a Christopher Nolan project. And uh, some people are probably familiar with his work. The newer director starting to... <laughs> He's done okay, right? Yeah, you may, yeah, you okay. may have heard of him. Um, and I really love how you've talked. And it's clear you're a professional. Like, like you said, any job that comes in, pull it out. You're going to read it. You're going to treat it with dedication. Do you feel, when it comes to scale of projects, like, do you feel more weight stepping into something like that? Like someone who you do, obviously, I'm assuming, someone that you respect as a, as a filmmaker, someone you probably sat there and gone, I can't imagine working with them. And now you're sitting here gearing up for this. Is there like another level of pressure that you're carrying, especially sharing it with cast that, you know, the cast list is incredible. Yeah. And then I, and then here's the guy from drinking Josh, like what's he doing? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. You feel a lot of pressure because you want it to be great because you know, it's capable of being great. You know, with certain things you're doing, if you're doing a sitcom or something like that, I mean, granted, there have been some brilliant sitcoms, but if you're just making something that's just like a little bit more kind of mindless or what have you, you know that the ceiling for it to be great is only, you know, it's at a certain level. And even if Pacino, the greatest actor ever with the material within the medium could only make it so good. But like with something like a Nolan movie, yeah, you know it can be great and he's setting you up to be great. So all you have to do is rise to the occasion and, and be prepared. And you feel those nerves until you get there on the day. And then you realize you're just like, oh, this is just like anything else. It's just the best version of it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Your yeah. coworker is Cillian Murphy, you know, versus being like whatever else it could be. You know, I mean, like that's a that's a crazy day to walk on set and go, oh, I'm surrounded by greatness, <laughs> you know, everywhere. Oh, yeah. And but the best part is, is you work with a guy like Killian, he's like one of our greatest actors, and then he's a gem of a person. You're like, oh, thank God. Like, <laughs> you know, thank God you're great and nice. 
I've heard, yeah, I've heard some nightmare stories of people who are probably really fantastic actors, who are definitely really fantastic actors, but not super great. Uh, name when, them. Name yeah. them here. I'd much rather you name them because we'd get some good viral yeah. content out of this. Uh, I've, I've heard that about Christian Bale. I've heard about, yeah, no, uh, no, there's, there's been a few that I'm like, oh man, like fantastic actor, but you should work on being a better person. That's, that's kind of an interesting question. I didn't even think about it preparing for this, but you've mentioned obviously being a dad. That's a big thing in your book. You talk about it's an opportunity. You have a very hopeful outlook of I can break the cycle of you know, traumas, you can you can make a better life for them. You can avoid some of the obstacles there. I, I guess within the within the industry, I mean, the it's in Hollywood's notorious, you know, eating kids up, spitting them out. You know, it's it's it can be a very traumatic place for kids to be a lot of horror stories surrounding parents, like you know, we talked about. Do you have anybody within the industry that's you've looked at as a role model, not only as an actor, but also maybe as a parent or in how they balance their life and business? Have there been any mentors that you've kind of really grown to or, or you know, put yourself under to learn from? Oh, wow. Great question. I try to think of like the people who I really... I mean, look, there's just people whose career I'm envious of. Like, like Zendaya couldn't be crushing it any harder. Yeah, right. <laughs> like, and she's so impressive, especially coming from like the Disney Channel and just doing one of the best shows on HBO. And even, you know, like, and, and people whose, whose work I'm just a fan of, like Shia LaBeouf, I think is one of our greatest living actors. But I think as far as like all encompassing, you know, Jodie Foster is super impressive. And, and, you know, she started Taxi Driver and a bunch of other stuff. Like I said, Mayim Bialik. I mean, she's a host of Jeopardy. I don't think it gets any better. So, but yeah, I like, you know, I really am into people when I meet them they do incredible work and they're more stoked on like their kids little league game. To me, that's the best balance. Like when you meet like a true thespian who were acting his life, like it's cool for a minute, but then you start going like, all right, what else do you have to talk about? Yeah. Like being at a dentist convention, like how long are we going to talk about molars? <laughs> but when someone's got the great family life and a great career, or like, you know, I think people like Hugh Jackman seem to have that, like yeah. uh, that I really like. Up to. Well, I want to talk to you real quick about rejection because uh, a lot of people listening to the show are are kind of in in business just because I did about five years of door to door sales. And if there's any vocation that I would think would potentially actually be more rejection than what I did, it would have to be acting. And so I, I would assume that getting to the stage of your career that you're at, you've had to learn to some extent how to handle, how to deal with rejection. And I'm curious if you have any kind of advice for anybody out there listening. Oh, yeah. I mean, I would say like door-to-door sales, acting, maybe stand-up comedy, real estate to a certain degree, because you don't like, you'll never know what the number is, right? Like you'll never know if like, yeah, you you have to go up for 10 different deals and number eight's going to be the one, but you got to walk through the first seven. So you just don't know. But it's, uh, I would just say the, the only way I was able to get over rejection was when I went back to class and I started really looking at where was I, where did I have blind spots? Where was I less than? Because I think I was giving myself this little emotional safety net, this caveat where I would say, well, if I didn't get the part, it's because I didn't give it all of me. I didn't give it 100%. And had I given it 100%, well, then probably I would have gotten. Because that's scary, right? It's scary, this idea to give it your all. 
and then be confronted with this idea of like, yes, you did give it every ounce of you and it still wasn't enough. But then it's like, but what is life? You know, so it wasn't until I really learned how to do the work, felt confident that I was doing everything in my power and that I was just doing my end of the job that I was able to accept like, eh, this one wasn't mine. And still, I've done an audition that's still, that I auditioned for three weeks ago that's like banging around in my head where I'm like, when do I have that heard back? <laughs> yeah, you, I, I love, I've heard you say, you know, when you take responsibility for your life, it's got a lot of great benefits, but also you don't have anybody else to blame. And I think that's like, such a scary thing because when something, you know, when something works, you can be like, yeah, I just got cast in a Christopher Nolan movie like that, <laughs> you know, like I killed it. But then, like you said, when you have something where, you know, you don't get a call back for three weeks, you know, you're going, well, I can't blame anybody. I can't blame them. I can't blame anybody else. Like that responsibility there is a really scary but rewarding thing at the same time. You make such a great point. And, and I'm thinking now about how, you know, I end the book where I talk about how I had to let go of acting and accept my life as it was, that I was overpaid and I had a wife and a kid. And I was so lucky and I was making a living doing social media. It was only in like being able to truly let it go and have that ego death that I could start acting for me for the reasons that I fell in love with it when I was eight. And the book kind of ends where I say, and then of course, once I got to that place, I booked this Disney Plus show, Turner and Hooch. And it's like the biggest thing I've gotten in years. And in this uh, doing promotion for the book, because I finished that chapter a year ago, people have said, you know, you kind of hint in the book, you say, I just booked this thing. It's the biggest thing that I've had in my career. And by the time it comes out, it could be the biggest thing in the world or canceled or maybe somewhere in the middle. They're like, and the show got canceled. Like, how do you feel about that now? And I said, well, I could have changed the ending, right? Like I could have said, well, I got Oppenheimer or, you know, I got a Chris Nolan flick, right? But like, this is so indicative of my life as an actor in most lives. Like, yes, that got canceled. And then I got this other thing. And then I could spend the next year out of work. Like, you just don't know, which was why I didn't want to omit that, knowing that people would very publicly know that like, oh, I'm so excited, but it still got super canceled. But it's like, <laughs> but I'm okay. Like, the, the important part is that I'm okay. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head when you when you said earlier that it was really came down to your confidence and putting in the work. And I kind of always come back to that because when you're in the face of uncertainty and you're dealing with things that are outside of your control, all you're going to do is drive yourself crazy trying to think about how you can control them. When you went back to the drawing board and just said, I don't know what's going to happen. All I know is that I'm going to give this my best shot. I'm going to put in the reps. I'm going to go back to acting class. I'm going to put in the work. And then I'm going to do the things that are required of me. And if it happens at that point, fantastic. If it doesn't happen at that point, also fantastic. Because I am in a place where like these external circumstances don't change how I feel about myself on the inside. They don't change how my wife perceives me or the people that are closest to me that actually care about me perceive me. And I think that that's a really, really powerful takeaway. What's next on the docket for you, man? What, what, what's, what do you got cooking that you're excited about? I finished this movie for Netflix called 13, the musical that'll come out of this uh, small part in that sometime this year and doing my podcast, male models, you know, just about guys being attractive. I know you guys get it. And yeah, totally. uh, <laughs> yeah we're, we're coming on that one after this, right? Yeah, please. Anytime. <laughs> You're always invited. Well, I'm pulling this clip for sure. I'm so happy to be here with you guys. I, I so appreciate you reading the book and having me. This is, it's been great. Yeah. Um, I think that if I can slip one last question here, because Please. we kind of hit on it with the last two. 
obviously you've set really big goals for yourself. You've, you know, like I mentioned, stand up, you know, <laughs> while most people are worried about like, you know, what sport am I going to play? You're like pushing into these clubs and doing stand up, going and doing television at 15, making these decisions for yourself. And even still working, trying to get to the next level, but also being content. We hit on being content where you're at, being comfortable with the wins that you've had so far. For you, when you think about success, is there some idealistic place that you're working toward that you would consider like, at that point, I've made it, quote unquote, um, or is success for you in the day-to-day of like, I am putting in the work, I am being you know, confident, I am you know, doing the best that I can do moving forward? Oh man, Timothy Chalamet. No, <laughs> I, I remember growing up like, or, or uh, he doesn't have to go to auditions anymore, but you know, all through my 20s, like if Miles Teller would walk into an audition, I'd be like, all right, that's it for me. Have a good time, Miles. Kill it. Like, I, um, so, you know, I don't know what it looks like. I don't know if this is a good answer. Like, I don't know what it looks like. I know I'm not there yet. But I, like, yeah, I don't know what it looks like, but I know I'm not there yet. I wonder, I, I, you know, do I want to be a guy in my like 60s who's still like sitting in an audition room, like when I could be hanging out my, with my grandkids? I don't know. Or maybe I'll, I'll be like utterly pleased and, and I'm lucky, right? Like, you know, most actors get better with age, whereas like athletics, there's so many things, you know, in, in I've done a lot of research about physicists because of Oppenheimer as of recently. And, you know, what you learn about the different sort of science is that like mathematicians tend to do their best work before they're 30. I don't know why that is, but like there, there's a high burnout rate, whereas physicists tend to do their best work in their 30s, 40s, 50s as they get older. And I, I interviewed this famous um, physicist, Dr. Brian Keating out of UC Davis, and he's, or I'm sorry, UC San Diego. And he said, it's, it's because at the heart of what we do, there's like this deep curiosity for the way in which God's mind works. I was like, oh my God. But, like, but I think as an actor, as a creative, right? Like I have this curiosity about me. I'm dying to know like how people live their lives how I can, you know, bring a next, you know, an extra level of, of honesty and reality to the next part, to the next experience. And I feel really lucky that drives me because I'm not sure everyone has that level of curiosity about what they do. Happy people are annoying. Guys, if you're listening to this right now, go pick up a copy of Josh's book. I know you will not regret it. As you know, every time we mention a book here on the show, we recommend you pick it up now because if you don't, you're going to forget about it and life's going to get in the way. Stop whatever you're doing right now. Uh, head over to head over to Amazon, pick up a copy of Josh's book, and I'm sure that you will enjoy it. Uh, Josh, thanks so much for coming on the show, man. This is a lot of fun. That's awesome. Dude, you guys are awesome. Thank you so much for having me. I, I loved it. That's it for today's episode. Thanks for spending some time with me and my friends. If you want to be better friends with me, then head over to travischapel.com slash team to subscribe to my free newsletter, Your Friend Travis, where I share what's on my mind about life, building a business, raising kids, being married, and anything else I would normally share with my close circle of friends. That's travischapel.com slash team. And my biggest ask of you since I'm sharing my friends with you is to share this episode with a friend of yours that hasn't listened to the show yet and leave us a quick five-star rating in Apple Podcasts and in Spotify. It would mean the world to us as it helps us make sure that this show continues to be more valuable to you. Thanks in advance, and I'll catch you on the next episode.